I get a lot of people who are like, I love change. I'm a change junkie, right? Change is awesome. And I'm always like, hold on a minute. You love change you can control. You love change you can choose. The reality is change is really complicated and it's really messy. And it's not just one thing. There's more of that kind of change ahead, not less. And so we all need to get better at how we relate to it. A World Economic Forum young global leader and ranked as one of the 50 leading female futurists in the world by Forbes, April Rene is a change navigator. She helps individuals and organizations to rethink and reshape their relationship with change, uncertainty, and the world in flux. She is a trusted advisor to well-known startups and companies, financial institutions, nonprofits, and think tanks worldwide including Airbnb, Nike, Intuit, the World Bank, as well as governments ranging from Singapore to South Africa, Canada to Colombia, and Italy to India. April is the author of Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. Today's episode with April is exactly what we need when life is in constant flux. This is a wisdom-packed episode, and we hope you guys enjoy this. Hi! This is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Hello, April, and welcome to the Explore This podcast. We first connected last October when you published your article titled Why You Should Build a Career Portfolio and Not a Career Path on Harvard Business Review. And we will be sure to add the link to this article in our episode show notes later. But we're so glad that we finally found some time to speak to you. Thank you for dialing in all the way from Portland, Oregon. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted you reached out. I'm delighted we could make this work. So April, you identify as a futurist, advisor, global development executive, microfinance lawyer, investor, mental health advocate, certified yoga teacher, globetrotter, and insatiable handstander. That was quite the list. So tell us about your handstand adventures and how your whole handstand series came about. Oh my goodness, what a fun question to kick off with. So these days, I like to talk about my handstands as my upside down perspective on the world. And, you know, when life throws you curveballs or change, or you don't know what to do, I always like to say, shift your perspective and going upside down can really help. But I've been doing handstands as long as I can remember, actually, mainly because as a child, I did gymnastics. And so that's how I learned. But then what happened is all of my friends that I grew up doing handstands with, they just like stopped doing handstands. And for some reason, I just kept doing them. And then all of a sudden, I realized no one else my age is doing handstands anymore. But I also had some family friends. And this was in my early 20s, basically, I was traveling a lot around the world. And this was a time when, you know, people were like taking photos of their teddy bear, or there's that guy who does the chicken dance right when they travel. And my family, they said, you know, start taking photos, do handstand when you travel to interesting places. And I don't think they realized how seriously I would take that challenge because it basically became this like game. Basically, I would I would travel and if I was at like the pyramids of Giza or the Colosseum in Rome or like out in the middle of nowhere in Mongolia or Bolivia, I would do handstands and take photos. And what was lovely is that I was usually traveling on my own at this time meaning that I had to find somebody, some local, to take my picture. 
And invariably they thought I was crazy. They were like, you want me to do what? And, you know, they might not have spoken English. I might have not have spoken the local language. There was all of this kind of confusion, but then it ended up being this wonderful way to break the ice and get to know new people and kids would get really excited and they would start, you know, tumbling and doing somersaults and they would invite me out to tea afterwards. And it became like a signature of sorts. And so that's what got me started. Once I had a few of those experiences, I couldn't stop. And I'm still doing them today. I, I hope to be able to do them as basically as long as I'm alive. And one just fun anecdote here. A lot of times people think that to do handstands, you need to have really strong arms and you do, you need arm strength, but more than your arms is a, is a strong core. Doing handstands is all about your alignment. It's all about where you're looking. And I like to bring that up because there's actually more insight here to how we navigate change that we can learn from handstands than might first meet the eye. Which is a perfect kickstart to our conversation, April, on the fluxed world. And we'll get you to share a little bit more about what that means and how we navigate this uncertain future that we're all in. But let's kickstart with you sharing about your personal journey with flux. Yeah. So this word flux, you know, it means constant change. It's also a verb. It means to learn, to become fluid. But like, I've been really interested in how humans navigate change well for a long time. And I think in ways I didn't actually see way back when, but now I look back and I go, wow, my journey through this world in flux began almost 30 years ago. And so I wrote a book recently about it, which was timed very, very well for the pandemic. But it's not a book about the pandemic. And it's not a book that I wrote in 2020. It's a book that I've been working on for many, many years. And there are a few different ways that I approach it and that I'm interested in, in change and humans' relationships to change. And one of them is, as Janice mentioned earlier, I'm known as a futurist. And that means that I help organizations understand what's on the horizon and how they fit into it. So you can think about the future of work, the future of education, the future of sustainable consumption, the future of cities, it's the future of fill in the blank, and really looking at what are those macro trends that are defining and shaping that future. Most companies, most organizations, they're so focused on the day-to-day -day operations, they're not really looking on the horizon. But the stuff that's on the horizon is what could actually completely waylay them, completely surprise them, right? And as I, as I like to say, in the world of futurism, a pandemic was not a big surprise. In the world of futurism, the Great Resignation was not a big surprise. We saw these things coming, but most people were checked out. They were not paying attention. They didn't want to believe that something like that could happen until it did. And then they're in a lot of discomfort and a lot of stress trying to make their way through. So in my role as a futurist, one thing I've seen again and again is every organization, every team, every person on the planet struggles with change in some way. Not necessarily in the same way, but there's just so much room for improvement. My entire career has been global, international. And, and what I've seen through that is that every culture on the planet also struggles with change, but also has developed unique ways of seeing it and talking about it and concepts and rituals and traditions around change and transition. And there's just so much we can learn from one another if we can connect those dots. And then last but definitely not least, if I go back in my history, like it's my human story and my lived experience with change that really, that's when the story really began. And I like to say that my 
entry into a world in flux, so to speak, happened uh, more than 25 years ago. So I'm dating myself a little bit here. And I was in college and both of my parents died in a car accident. And I know I just sort of put <laughs> put a really difficult topic into our conversation, but but I want to be clear that for me, it's a real joy and and a pleasure to talk about this because it's a way that I can connect with others and acknowledge that every single person is dealing with grief and loss and anxiety. And if nothing else, every person has lost some piece of the world or a sense of normalcy that we might have felt a few years ago. And so when I lost my parents, like everything changed. My whole world, my future kind of melted. And I had to figure out like, how do I rebuild my family? And what does this mean for my career and all these other things? But it was really this notion of like, what do I do when I don't know what to do? And today, that's one of those questions that I think all of us in some way, shape or form are asking. And that I have now a perspective, I have a series of tools, I have a series of suggestions and skills and practices to help us navigate change. And that relates to how we work and how we show up professionally, which I know we'll get to, but that also relates to you know how we show up for ourselves and for those people we care about and how we deal with flux individually, organizationally, and as a society, as, as a culture, as, as humanity as a whole. April, I can only imagine the difficulty of emotions that you had to process as a 20-year-old receiving that news and how that sort of upended and totally transformed your life overnight. So I'm really glad that we're having this conversation today. And thankfully for us, you wrote a book about this, uh, which we'll dive into throughout the conversation. But we want to explore next with you, how do we view change as an opportunity and not a threat. Well, thank you. And I just want to go back to a couple of things you said earlier, where it's one of those things, of course, I don't wish that I went through what I went through. I, I would love to have my parents not have died, but the fact is they did, and there's nothing I can do to bring them back. And so I'm left with a choice. I can either, you know, basically say life treated me badly and, you know, not fair and all of that kind of resistance and negativity around it. Or I can say, there's nothing I could do to change this. How do I want to move my way through life? How can this change how I show up more fully for myself and for others? And I'm foreshadowing a little bit what we'll talk about later. It changed how I saw everything. It changed how I saw what matters. It changed how I thought about myself and my career and what I could contribute to the world. And as I like to say, the central question for me from the age of 20 onwards, and I know this might sound a little bit morbid, it's not intended to be morbid at all. It's, it's actually really grounding and really clarifying. But my question became, if I were to die tomorrow, now, not that I want to, not that I plan to, but like, look what just happened. It could happen to any of us, right? If I were to die tomorrow, what does the world need me to do today? And that question, asking that day after day after day, led me to some very different answers in terms of how do I want my career to evolve? What matters? A salary, title, reputation, identity, how other people see me, or whether I can serve the most people in the most you know, empowering ways. So we'll come back to that. But like I just, it did change everything. 
So back to your question about, you know, change. I, I talk to people every day about change, right? And, and I get a lot of people who are like, I love change. I'm a change junkie. Change is awesome. And I'm always like, hold on a minute. You love change you can control. You love change you can choose. But change, we talk about it like this one big concept, like it's one thing. When the reality is change is really complicated and it's really messy and it's not just one thing. So it's true, not just you and me, but most humans tend to love change we can opt into, right? Think about it like a new relationship, a new job, a new adventure, a new haircut, right? We love that kind of change. But the changes that we struggle with or resist or the ones that make us unravel, those are the changes we can't control. The kind of change that blindsides you on a Tuesday afternoon, it goes against your expectations, right? That's what I was dealt with when I was 20. But that's also what we've all been dealt quite a lot over the last two years. And the key is there's more of that kind of change ahead, not less. And so we all need to get better at how we relate to it, not just how we react to it. Because when we we react to it, we often resist it. It affects our emotions. It makes us unravel. We've got to change that because moving forward, we have more, not just more change, but a faster pace of change. We'll come back to that in a minute as well. And so this notion of how do we see change as an opportunity and not a threat, it is about how we relate to change. And think about, this is where the book goes into it in a lot more detail, but I like to think about like every single one of us has a relationship to change. We love certain kinds of changes. We hate other kinds. Certain changes delight you, other changes make you fearful. We know that more change is around the corner, yet knowing that often freaks us out. So I bring this up because one of the core themes or concepts in my book is this notion, because I firmly believe that at the end of the day, our relationship to change comes down to our mindset about change. And it's what I call a flux mindset, which is the ability to see all change whether it's good or bad or expected or unexpected, but especially the hard stuff, especially the change you didn't want to have happen, but you can't control whether it happens. And in fact, the more you try to convince yourself that it can't happen or didn't happen or shouldn't happen, the more anxious and the more unraveled you become. It's the ability to see all of that as an opportunity to grow and to learn and to improve. Another way that I'll frame it is it's the ability to lean into uncertainty precisely because you're not trying to make it something different. So it does require acknowledging that things have happened that you wished had not happened, but not resisting or shying away from them, actually walking through the difficulty, but getting to a much, much better place at the end. And that's bringing it back to today. That's what I feel like we've all been dealt is this huge opportunity to reshape how we relate to change in a way that is fit for a world in flux, which is a very different world than a lot of us have been taught to believe that we're living in. And now what we have are a lot of people saying, what I was taught about the world and how it should work and what my role is in it, it doesn't actually align at all with the world as I'm experiencing it. And so that's the opportunity. April, you spoke about 
opting in for changes and those are the ones that we embrace wholeheartedly with our arms <laughs> wide open. And that's so true. But then the changes that are thrown to us, especially ones that we didn't see coming and the ones that have a negative impact in our lives are the ones that, you know, we fear the most. And the H.O. cliche of change is the only constant. It, it cannot be more true in a world of flux. So I guess the really crucial question to that then is what are some tools that we need to have in our toolkit or our arsenal to help us prepare for all the uncertainty and the permanent impermanence that the world is throwing at us? Yeah, certain uncertainty and permanent impermanence. It's like, (laughs) and what I love is back to a flux mindset. One of the qualities of a flux mindset is to be able to hold that paradox and be okay with it and to realize that you can have certain uncertainty. And people are like, wait, that makes no sense. It's like, no, it actually does. And and you need to get comfortable with it. But a lot of this makes us uncomfortable because we so badly want to predict and control and engineer the future. And yet that's not the world we live in. And that's not how the future plays out. So back to, you know, what are the tools, the toolkit, the arsenal? It all relates to what I call broadly in the book, I tee it up as kind of a theory of flux. And this is not a heavy handed, highly academic theory, anything like that. It's just a way of seeing how we improve our relationship to change. And so the first step is to open this flux mindset, right? To acknowledge that your relationship, my relationship, everyone's relationship to change can improve. And exactly how it needs to improve will vary from person to person, but we can all use some help, right? The second step is to use that flux mindset to unlock what I call the eight flux superpowers. So these are the skills and disciplines and sort of how to thrive in constant change. These reflect the different practices that help us reshape our relationship to change to be fit for this world in flux, a world that is constantly changing. And so as a result, the superpowers, the skills and practices that we need look very, very different and often can rub some people the wrong way, which is what I love because I'm always like, pay attention to which of these superpowers makes you uncomfortable because that's a signal of where your relationship to change may need some extra attention. So the eight superpowers, the first one is run slower. Now, this is all about anxiety and burnout, but also it's about making wiser decisions. The second one is see what's invisible. This is about how we identify our blind spots and also how we identify new insights, new opportunities, new sources of value, things that we were taught to believe are invisible, but yet When we make them visible, we actually discover a new world of opportunity. The third one is get lost. Uh, This is all about our relationship with the unknown and how we stretch beyond our comfort zones. The fourth one is start with trust. This is all about how we nurture relationships and navigate change better together. The fifth one is know you're enough. This is about our obsession with more, 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 more and how that's making many of us crazy. But also it's about our quest for true happiness and satisfaction and where that really comes from. And the sixth one is create your portfolio career. This is all about how to design your professional development and your professional identity in ways that are fit for a future of work that is itself in flux. The seventh one is be all the more human. This is about our relationship to technology 
And the tension that we face in that we are spending ever more time with our devices and yet ever less time with one another. And last but not least, the eighth flux superpower is let go of the future. And if I had a little bit more space in the book, I would have said it's let go of our fear of the future. (laughs) And this is all about our relationship to control. And a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, letting go, that sounds like giving up. That sounds like failure. No, that's the opposite. What I'm talking about is we need to get out of our own way and let go of our obsession with wanting to predict and control, quote, the future. And there is no one future. There are many different possible futures that could play out. And we need to let go of the future in order to let those other possible and likely better futures emerge. So that is an overview. And uh, we can go from there. Great, April. That's a really comprehensive overview of the eight different superpowers. And I would just encourage our listeners out there to get the book if you would like to know in detail about each of the eight superpowers. But Luckily for our listeners today, we'll get to dive really deep into one of the eight superpowers, which is talking about what does a career portfolio mean and how we're going to go about it. And this was actually inspired by this Harvard Business Review article that you've published in October 2021, titled Why You Should Build a Career Portfolio. And, you know, early in the conversation, we talked about how we share a past history of being trained in law and, and being in legal practice. So this was actually super cool. And I think seeing how your career trajectory has played out and to hear about how you've built your own career portfolio. I think that's personally very inspiring for Sarah Ann and myself. So yeah, we'd love to pick your brains and deep dive into this conversation on what does a career portfolio mean and what are the benefits of having a career portfolio? I spent a lot of my early life not wanting to climb a corporate ladder or follow one thing. I was never interested in one thing. I was that kid that was interested in too many things. And then I was told, you shouldn't be interested in too many things. You need to focus. And there was always this like, but wait a minute. I'm not saying I'm not serious. I'm not saying I don't want to work hard. I'm saying I'm not interested in A or B. I'm interested in A plus B or what's in between A plus A and B or the combination of what's after A and B, C and D, and that there's value in being able to see those different angles and perspectives and disciplines. And fast forward, and I think we're finally starting to enter a world in which people recognize that this notion of a career path is very limiting, actually. It's not reflective of the full picture. And I think most of us, myself included, right, when it comes to your career and your professional development, that we're taught that we should, well, the narrative goes something like study hard, get good grades, go to college or university if you can, get a job, preferably a good job at a good company, do that job for a very long time, work your way up the ladder and retire. Study, work, retire. Study, work, retire. It's very linear. It's very unidirectional, unilateral. It's like go. And and the higher you climb up the ladder, the more, quote, important or powerful you are. It's all very boxed in. I don't want this to appear like I'm somehow bashing it. I'm simply saying it's extremely limiting. And for many people, what we're discovering is that that script, that narrative, you didn't write it. Someone else wrote it for you. And you're being told, this is how you succeed, as opposed to more and more people saying, wait a minute, how do I define success? 
how do I define meaning and purpose and well-being? At the same time, I would say that the, the career ladder, if you will, it's not working for a lot of people. A lot of people are on it and they feel kind of stuck. A lot of people are saying, whoa, this ladder is falling over. And at the same time, and we have sort of three forces going on here. We've got individuals who are waking up and saying like, wait a minute, there's more ways to do this. We've got companies who are saying, wow, we need, you know, and this is this predates the great resignation, but with the great resignation, you do see companies saying, we have built models that are not necessarily around humans. They're more around how much money are we making? And humans are simply a tool in that. But then we also have technology, which is breaking down a lot of different barriers and obstacles that used to keep us more siloed, if you will. And candidly, there have never been more ways to earn income, to create a career, to contribute to society than there are today. And so all of this is leading to a kind of break or a fracturing of that old model. And not that it's disappearing, but the the study, work, retire, get a job, be a lifer at one company, it's still an option, but I would say it's an option for fewer and fewer people. And there is a growing menu of options for how you create a meaningful career. And so back to career portfolio, when you think about your career path, you think I'm going to pursue a singular path and my resume is going to have my credentials and my GPA and my title and like very formal, there's a certain set of things that go in to your resume. Your portfolio, a portfolio approach zooms out and takes a much broader lens or broader snapshot of who you are and what you can contribute. And what I mean by that is the concept of a career portfolio, it includes everything that you care about, that you can do, that adds value to society. It is not about a title. It is not about a certain salary. It is not about whether you volunteered for this or you did it 20 years ago or you did it today or it's a skill you want to improve. All of that is in your portfolio. I'll come back to that in a little bit because it's much more reflective of who you are. But when we think about the concept of a portfolio, there are many different kinds of portfolios out there. So the two that I like to refer people to first, an artist has a portfolio, right? What goes in an artist's portfolio? Their best works of art, the things they're most proud of. The other kind of portfolio is an investment portfolio. So investors keep portfolios of investments. They do that to diversify their holdings, but also to mitigate risk. And this brings up another interesting tension that we face today. A lot of people are worried about, will they have a job in five years time or 10 years time? Automation, disruption, right? And that's making a lot of people really nervous. And it is very true that while any job that someone else gives you can also be taken away. And I hate to sound blunt about that, but the fact is, this is not about whether or not you love your job, whether or not you're good at your job. Things change. And there is no guarantee if someone else gave you that job, someone else can take it away. In contrast, your portfolio is yours forever. No one can take it away from you. You have to be responsible for it and you will have to adapt as things go along. But in this world of flux and this future of work in flux, in which it feels like so much is beyond our control ownership of your portfolio and ownership of this way of seeing your professional identity, 100% in your control, and no one's going to be able to take it away. And so it's interesting because 
when I think about a career portfolio, this goes beyond what's on your resume. It goes beyond what a given role is or you know, whatever metrics you're going to use to judge yourself, so to speak. This is about how we envision and design our professional identity and in turn our entire career in ways that are fit for a world and a future of work that is, is itself subject to lots more change, lots more uncertainty, lots more unknowns. But it's a concept that's actually really empowering. And final point, it's a concept that applies to literally, and I mean literally everyone. So a lot of times people are like, wait, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit. How do I get started creating a portfolio? I'm always like, well, the first step is recognize that you already have one, even if you may not realize it. Most people don't realize it on day one but you already have one. It's up to you though, to curate it, to take care of it, to really help it grow and expand. One of the phrases that stood out for me in the article on the Harvard Business Review, and you mentioned this briefly, but I'm just going to quote you. You said, I felt like something was wrong with me because I was interested in so many things while my friends were laser focused on climbing the corporate ladder. And it's not that I wasn't disciplined or willing to work hard. There was just too much worth learning and doing. And to settle on one pursuit seemed like a mistake. And I think that was one of the things that definitely resonated with myself, right? It's, it stuck out to me because as someone who also struggled to identify as a generalist due to my varied and diverse interest in so many different things, I used to think it was a weakness to not be laser focused in any one particular area. But, you know, through this conversation and definitely through the article, it's also helping me to embrace broadening my career focus as well as professional identity while being able to also curate and take control of my own career portfolio with this never-ending source of discovery that you speak about. So I guess tying it all together, then the pivotal question would be, you mentioned about the fact that we do already have a career portfolio, we might just not recognize it, but how do we then continue to build that career portfolio? And if there are gaps in experiences, how do we then decide what's best to fill them? Yeah. Oh, and I love even that we define a career gap as a problem because in a traditional setting, career gap or a, a, a gap in your resume, it's a red flag. From the perspective of a portfolioist and in my experience and watching many other people, gaps in your resume are actually, as far as I can tell, that's when great growth happens. That's when soul searching happens. That's when trying new things happen. And yet somehow we think that doesn't show up on our resume or it's a problem. So we're really flipping a lot of paradigms. And I know that I just spent a fair amount of time explaining, like, what is this portfolio? Like, where does it come from? I want to go back, though, and recognize that when I talked about as when Janice introduced me and, you know, rattled off all these different things, in fact, not only has it been a really interesting and varied career, but it's being able to see and understand insights and perspectives from all of these different places, which not many people can do. That's what's actually helped me stand out as a candidate for a job, but it's also what's helped me launch my own ventures. It's also helped me identify opportunities that weren't seen necessarily because it's hard to see stuff when you're just in one domain. It's hard to see the connections when you're siloed. And so all of this 
Career portfolios also help us not just better identify what we're good at and what we want to do, but also to translate that into new opportunities, also to translate that for others to show how we can add more value than if we'd only done A or B. Now, I want to go back to, though, what you'd asked about, you know, the sense of my my own story of like, I felt like my friends were focused and I was not. As a kid, being that that kid that was interested in too many things, so to speak. And I do want to tie it back, though, to some degree, to what I experienced with losing my parents and that question that I always had, which was, if I were to die tomorrow, what would the world need me to do today? And after I graduated from university, I had quite a few people who were concerned about me, right? I had just lost my parents. I was having to navigate the world on my own. It was not a happy time. And I had a lot of really well-intentioned professors and mentors, and they were saying, you know, with your credentials, you should totally go work at a consulting firm or an investment bank, like go for it. This is a really good path for you. And I was sitting there and I have to say this, you know, with all due respect to consulting firms and investment banks, but I was sitting there going, if I were to die tomorrow, the last thing the world needs me to do is go work at a consulting firm or an investment bank. And it was interesting because I got so much pushback from other people. But I was saying, no, I absolutely want to contribute to society. I think there's a greater impact I can make than working in an investment bank. And But again, spending some time in an investment bank could teach me some skills that I could leverage in other ways. And so in my case, I went and I worked at law firms, which taught me incredible skills, but not to simply work at a law firm, to go and take those skills and help empower other people, to take them in in, in interesting ways. And, and as a result, I was able to I think of it as like weaving a fabric, but my threads, I had many more threads to draw from. And I, I say this you know, many years later, when I look at people who are going through some kind of professional identity crisis, am I in a career that I love? Am I spending my time in the best way? Is this bringing out the best in me, right? And a lot of people, and here I could say it's like a midlife crisis thing, but it can happen at any age. But the people that I see who are experiencing some version of a midlife crisis, they're asking themselves the same set of questions that I started asking myself at age 20. If I were to die tomorrow, what does the world need me to do today? And I wish that all of us, whatever age you are, could start asking that question sooner because it will change how you see what you want to do. And I bring this up because today, I think amidst the great resignation and many other forces, a lot of people are questioning this. But the the beautiful thing is that these questions and these answers have always been available to us. We simply haven't been asking the questions. And now we have the chance to. And as a result, again, jobs are totally part of this, you know, this puzzle, but they're one piece of the puzzle. There are so many different ways that each of us can combine the many different things in our portfolios to add value to organizations and society at at large in different ways. And in the process, coming full circle back to what you were asking about, in the process, we actually do get to explore maybe not all of the things you're interested in, but a much, much larger range. And we're able to see, I don't want to sound trite here, but I love the notion like one plus one sometimes can equal 11, right? The combination, the sum of what you're bringing together from these different threads is greater than just the individual parts. And that's what we're, you know, I will also fully acknowledge we're pretty early in this journey still. I mean, it's funny when I think about it because 20 years ago that I was feeling this way, 
we didn't really have the language to talk about it. And it was very much stigmatized. Now it's gradually less stigmatized, but it's still not mainstream. And yet I look 20 years into the future and coming back, you know, the career that's going to thrive in this future looks far more like a portfolio than like a path. And so I think that in the coming years and coming decades, we're going to see an explosion of this concept, but also that there's not just one kind of portfolio. Each one of us can create and curate our unique version. And that requires layering up skills, taking skills you've learned in one place, transferring them somewhere else, learning to see again, and this sounds maybe a little bit trite, but I love that like, even when you're trying to navigate through a forest, the path through the forest is not one tree or the other tree. It's in between the trees. And so for all of us to learn to see our professional development, to see our professional well-being and our professional identity in this broader lens with this broader perspective. I was thinking about what you were saying about people who are going through, you know, experimenting with the different paths. And you talked about having worked in a law firm. And I'm just thinking about our listeners who may be those who might fall in the camp of having a particular career path in mind and they want to make it to partnership, for instance, and they're really passionate about what they do and they see their career going down more of a in, in a way, quite singular, a more straightforward path rather than, let's say, creating a more diverse range of portfolio careers. Is there a way for them to also still leverage that mindset of flux and being able to use these different skills in a portfolio sense, but to apply that in a more singular setting? Absolutely. What a great question. Oh my goodness. I love every interview I give, I get some kind of new like, wow, where did that come from? And also I want to be really clear what I'm talking about. I'm really trying not to say that portfolio good, path bad. I'm not trying to say that at all. What I'm trying to tease out is that the path, the path model itself is cracking. And so I'm all for people who have this singular, like I've always dreamed of being an astronaut and, or I've always dreamed of being a law firm partner. And like, please let me just go do that. I'm like, awesome. Go for it. Just be really clear that life and the world are full of curveballs that despite your best of intentions, there's a very, very good chance that's not going to happen or it could happen and you could be miserable or you could change, you could evolve. And I meet a lot of people who say 10 years ago, I wanted nothing more than to make partner. And now I've made partner and I realize I didn't have my priorities in the right way, or I've changed as a person and I don't, I'm outgrowing what I'm doing or whatever the case may be. So it accommodates all of those things. And here it's not just professional changes. It's personal changes. It's family changes. It's health changes. It's the kind of change that can, again, throw you a curveball on a Tuesday afternoon that changes your life forever and you need to be able to adapt. And the people that have a portfolio that is more things to draw from, more skills to draw from, are better placed to weather any and all of those changes. So let's say you're a lawyer and you're practicing a certain kind of law. You may have some side interests and hobbies and passions that you could combine with the law. But you also might be learning. It's fascinating. I come in touch with people every day who they may be known as, you know, they're into finance or they're into marketing or they're into law or public policy or something like that. But they're also focused on a certain selection of domains. So they may be doing law, but they're doing it for travel and tourism. 
or they're doing it for retail, or they're doing it for wellness or whatever. You have a set of legal skills or policy skills or marketing skills or whatever, but you also have a set of skills that relate to that sector, that domain, that thing you love. It's especially powerful when you have practical or technical skills that you can combine with something you love to do, but you don't necessarily do for income. And you might have heard of you know, Ikigai, that notion, that Venn diagram of what you love to do, what you can make a living doing, and what the world needs. We're getting a little bit into that territory. So I have talked to people to get back to this notion of like different kinds of portfolios. Some people, their portfolio looks like they've just got five or six different things that they're doing in their portfolio, each of which nurtures them in a different way. You've got other people who have one portfolio. I actually spoke with um, a friend of mine just recently. His entire portfolio is in the travel and tourism sector. But as part of that, he spends some of his time advising companies. He spends some of his time teaching. He spends some of his time writing. And each one of those things nurtures him in a different way, but it's all focused on one kind of topic, right? It's breaking the model of the, I do the same thing each day from the same hours kind of thing and mixing it up. When you talk about, I want to be focused on one domain, but I want to spend my time. And I like to think of it as I want to stretch my brain in more than one direction. You find people who may run a small business. They may do advising and consulting. They may do volunteer work all around the same topic or set of topics But each one brings them satisfaction and allows them to build different kinds of skills and bring out different parts of themselves on any given day. April, I just wanted to challenge a little bit because, you know, we talk about building a lot of different and diverse skill sets. And we talked about, you know, never ending source of discovery and fulfillment through the various side hustles or projects or things that we do that can all be brought together as we curate our career portfolio. But what do we say to people who work only to earn a living? And they don't look beyond that. And obviously, I come from a place of recognizing that it also comes from a place of privilege. And not everyone has that privilege of being able to think of something beyond the nine to five, and they just want to work to earn a living, support their family. So how do we then encourage and still nudge them to broaden their mindset if if this was the scenario that they're playing with? So I love that you bring this up. And I actually just gave a presentation that related to the same theme came up. And what it was, the question in that setting was, having a portfolio career sounds like a really privileged thing to be able to do. Here's the interesting thing. We're comparing it to the career ladder. A career portfolio is actually accessible to everyone. What we're looking at Again, coming back to what are the things you're capable of? So much that's in your portfolio is not reliant on a particular credential or a particular degree. One of my favorite examples here is parenting skills, right? And again, cuts across demographics, cuts across income levels, cuts across all of that. Parenting skills are not typically allowed on a resume. You don't see them there. If anything, back to your point, Sarah Ann, If you take time out to raise your children, that looks like a resume gap. Oh no, how do I explain that? And yet here I am going like, wait a minute, last I checked, parenting skills are among the most valuable and powerful skills ever for 
anything from project management to teamwork, managing difficult responsibilities, right? Parenting skills should be front and center of any resume, but they're not. But they are at the center of your portfolio. Similarly, work that's paid versus unpaid. Resume is like, how much were you earning? I'm looking at this going, what did a particular role teach you? Don't tell me about how much you made or didn't make. Don't tell me about whether you were a senior vice president or director or whatever. Tell me your story of what you were able to do as a result. And so I love this challenge because for me, it is about actually dismantling a lot of the very hierarchical, sometimes even elitist structures that the career path and the career ladder have brought about. But I want to come back and say, someone who is working very much, you know, month to month, week to week, just trying to get by, that person has a portfolio. That person has agency. Now, what that person may need a bit of extra time and attention, and this is where I think there's a huge opportunity, is to actually be able, have the bandwidth to create the portfolio narrative and identify with where they want to go. And again, each person wants to go somewhere different. Sometimes people like, I want to try new things. I want to have more free time. I want to earn more money. I mean, that's not my place to judge what someone else's priority is, but developing your portfolio narrative and explaining the connections in the different pieces of your portfolio, that is not necessarily easy. That does not necessarily happen fast. And that's something we can all help one another with. But also those who are less fortunate, those with less privilege. And again, let's be clear, lots of kinds of privilege, right? There's financial privilege. There's age privilege. There's actually the privilege of growing up in an emotionally stable household. I think that's the kind of privilege a lot of us take for granted. But let me tell you, having an emotionally stable upbringing is going to get you a lot further in life than growing up in a household with a lot of money. For example, I'm not looking for the answer, but I am very clear on the power of a portfolio mindset to actually be more accessible, to actually chip away to some degree at certain kinds of privilege, and to recognize, though, that there's a lot we can do to help one another to curate our portfolios and to also close some of those gaps that exist around inequality and inequity. April, I think you summarized it really, really well. You've really made a case of how a career portfolio can certainly transcend privilege, socioeconomic statuses, and how it really is a never-ending source of discovery and fulfillment. And so, you know, coming to the very last question on our portfolio careers, I think we want to tie this together um, for our listeners to come up with some actionable steps that they can take. Some of them who are currently creating that career portfolio, curating all of these different initiatives, ventures, projects that they are part of, how would you advise them to communicate their career portfolio in a way that makes sense? The first thing to do is to identify what's in your portfolio. You you kind of have to get a handle because again, most people don't realize that they have a portfolio already. And so just the first step is like this baseline. What's in it? What, What connects? How does it connect? Where can I draw patterns, themes, lines, relationships between the different things in it, right? So that's going to look different from for everybody. Again, there's not it's not a cookie cutter approach, but there are some things where you can identify patterns in your portfolio 
how did one thing lead to another? What's the through thread? What's the story that I can tell? But a story, the narrative that describes what's uniquely you. And it has to be uniquely you because no one else has had your life experience. But again, usually we're put in these kind of boxes that are our resumes and like everyone's resume at a certain level, it's like they all look the same. The boxes are filled in a little bit differently, but they look really similar. There's an element of self-awareness here. There's an element of kind of going deep internally and saying, what did this role or this set of experiences? And again, it doesn't have to be a job. What did this experience, what did this trip What did this leadership role in a community organization, what did this role as a student lead, a student ambassador, like what did this really teach me? And how did that skill show up in this other setting later in life? It's that sort of thing that we really want to get clear on in terms of what's in your portfolio and how does it relate to one another? And then moving forward, it's getting deliberate on where is it that you would like to be in some period of time. But here's the hook. It's not about if I don't get to that place that I failed. It's not that if I don't get there, that somehow something's wrong with me. Because again, this goes back to the path. That's that's a path kind of mentality. But if you figure out what are the things that matter most to me to contribute to others, to serve others, to give back, to make society a little bit of a better place. It was interesting because Just as an example, I was talking to somebody who's had a career in marketing and they're really kind of frustrated and they want something new and they're trying to wrestle with like what's in their portfolio. And I said, well, what matters to you most? And you keep peeling back the layers of this onion. And at the end of the day, what they realized is what they really, what really brings them alive is simply helping other people. And all of a sudden they were like, so if I'm looking at jobs in which I can help other people, as opposed to I'm looking for a job that's in social media and marketing, totally different mindset. And all of a sudden they were considering roles and opportunities that went way beyond the domain that they would have focused on if it had been social media and marketing. And all of a sudden, a whole other range of organizations were interested in their candidacy because they were looking for a kind of insider outsider perspective. They love the fact that they had marketing, but they weren't hiring them for their marketing skills. But the marketing skills were what helped them become the perfect candidate. It was that added touch as opposed to the core of what they did. We've got to let go that it has to be one specific outcome, but we have to be really careful about paying attention to how we are growing and evolving and how our priorities might be shifting and how our interests might be shifting and not see that as some kind of bad thing or some kind of stigma but actually see it as part of the natural growth of a human being that of course we're going to change and evolve. Oh, and by the way, again, the future of work is going to change and evolve whether or not we want it, whether or not we ask for it, right? And embracing that kind of flux, that kind of uncertainty and celebrating it as opposed to beating ourselves up that what we wanted 10 years ago is no longer the same thing that we want today. I love that, April. Thank you so much for ending on that very hopeful note. Yeah. (laughs) We've taken so many notes as well. So we're really excited that this conversation is one that will be able to help reframe some very hardwired perceptions that many might have about change, career paths, and about creating that portfolio. And so as we're wrapping up, we do want to ask you one final question that we sometimes like to ask our guests, a bit of a surprise. So we'd like to ask you, what is something that you would like to explore more of? Wow. 
And thank you. Thank you so much for hosting me. Thank you for all of this. Every day I'm getting emails from people saying, Hey, did you think about it in this way or that way or this way or that? Like I'm sort of drinking from the fire hose in terms of things I want to learn about. (laughs) I'll be really honest. One of the things that's in the book that I really enjoyed was all of these different cultural concepts, connotations, traditions, beliefs, like kind of the social anthropology view of flux of like, how do different traditions around the world see change? And every day I'm getting new examples of those. It would be my dream once it's a little safer to travel again, to spend like a year just going around the world, interviewing people about their cultural concepts of change. And I will say, I know you guys are in Malaysia and Hong Kong and just Asia as a whole, Eastern versus Western cultures and traditions. Some of that shows up in the book already. There's just so much beauty. If there were any place I would want to explore first, it would actually be uh, more within Asia, but then also indigenous and native traditions, which exist all over the world. But indigenous wisdom going back, you know, long ago when humans had a very different and much more sustainable relationship with nature, studying indigenous wisdom a bit more, I would love to do that. Studying certain aspects of Eastern philosophies a lot more and studying also nature, just in general, nature is one of our best teachers of change. You can think about the seasons changing. You can think about the fact that the last two years, like the world is flipped upside down, but the the flowers still blossom and the leaves still turn colors. So doing much more nature-based work around change as well. Thank you so much, April. It seems like there's a lot to look forward to. And we also welcome you to this side of the world. We also know yeah. that you you have worked and been to Malaysia many times. So we would love for you to explore, rightly so, the cultural nuances between the Western and Eastern approach when we talk about approaching change as something we shouldn't fear but embrace. And so thank you so much, April. And we would like to just give you our gratitude for spending time with us, even as you shared about how we can treat our career as a portfolio to curate rather than a path to pursue. And also, as you reminded us that for all the things in the world that we cannot change, the one thing that we can change and take control of is our portfolio. And so on that note, April, any final few words that you would like to leave our listeners with? Just that when everything is in flux, Everything can benefit from this flux mindset and these eight flux superpowers, including the portfolio career, which I think I just get so excited when I think about how it can transform how all of us are able to show up, but also just bring our best selves to what we do. Thank you so much for your time spent with us today. Thank you both so much. It's been my pleasure. If you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every Monday at 8pm. See you then!